G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Thursday, the 2nd of November, and our topics this week are 80% of Australians think pork barrelling is a form of corruption. You, statistically speaking, you are one of those. And Australia's migrant intake has already hit a record 500,000 people. It's crazy. Of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk, and because it's recently Halloween this week's a little bit spooky, and then we'll jump into This Week in Australian History with our deet, and we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex Bottle Top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up. It's been a couple of weeks. Adit, you've been up in sunny Queensland. How was your trip? I have. I've been way, way up in sunny Queensland. Up in beautiful Cape York. So as we uh, announced, la- well, you would have heard uh, last week's one, which we recorded uh, a little bit earlier. I went up for a hunting trip uh, after some, get rid of some feral pigs up there. We uh, we got a few, 21. So we've gotten more in other trips, less in other ones. So it wasn't too bad. And there was a, a few good boars in that, but that countryside up there is just I, I just love it up there you know you go out walking through you know dry bush and you've got every you can sort of feel the the dust and that and then you sort of essentially come around the corner and you're into a, a swamp or a lagoon and you're walking through the uh paper barks and you know squishy mud that's all been dug up by the the, the pigs listening out, trying to, to find out what's going on. And then you go to another spot and it's sort of a uh, a whole set of different trees and some of it looks like it's just been mown by a lawn because the cattle's been out there. And, yeah, go from a whole lot of extremes. It's, it gets hot, obviously, as you can imagine. <laughs> that might be a little bit of an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have – well, I – we had uh, the temperatures were like 38, uh, 39, 40. And, you know, doing a, a bit of a, yeah, a walk around in, in that does get, you go through a fair bit of water. But this was probably one of the most luxurious ones we've ever, we've ever done because uh, the mob we went with last year, this year they are at a new place and we're not quite sure why they had to change a little bit on the accommodation, but myself and the bloke, I, my mate that I went with, um, were in the cabins at the uh, the cattle station that we were on, which meant we had a bloody room with a bed and air conditioning. And it Ooh. was just, oh, no. <laughs> That's luxury, that is. Oh, it was look. The downside was you you didn't go back to camp, so you missed out on a lot of the um, just sitting around talking at at night. But uh, they had a couple of issues with some food there, which um, would have been a problem for us, which may have been part of the reason that we were put in the the, the cabins. Uh, so the guides, poor buggers, had to sort things out there. But yeah, from that side, it was. Uh, yeah, I said I've never had, never had it so luxurious. 
So um, yeah, better than the better than the tents that we we normally have. But that was that was fun, and it was I also learned something about the crocodiles up there because we we were in um, not too far from Laura. If anyone wants to look that up on the map up on the the Cape, and even they inland the salty saltwater uh, crocodiles do make it in during the the floods and the rains and everything. And there was a couple of uh, spots around the lagoons where they said, oh, look, yeah, that's sort of go too close to the, the water there. But there was one that we uh, sort of stalked in on and uh, the guide gave me a little nudge and pointed it out and there was a, a crocodile just sitting on the uh, the side of the bank. Now, it wasn't huge, two and a half metres. Um, so, yeah, it's big enough for me. But um, as far as crocs go, it wasn't massive. But the thing that I learnt was, as we were then walking around the dam through the bush, is sometimes, sometimes they also sit in the bush, um, sunning themselves. And we just walked by it. We thought it was a pig rushing out. Bloody crocodile runs out right behind us into the into the dam, and I got to say that got my heart racing. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Crocs, I'm not, I'm certainly not, uh, um, I don't hate Crocs or anything, but uh, I'll definitely give them a wide berth. Yep. Um, <laughs> even a two-meter Croc, it's not very big as far as our Crocs go, but no. yeah, you, <laughs> you won't find me getting too close. No, no, exactly. So that that was fun. And the other the other one that was uh, interesting, met this, uh, we're up there and they said, I'll oh, keep your eye out for uh, a a young bloke walking along the uh, the road, and he had sort of it almost looked like a, a pram pushing type of thing. We'd seen his tent, seen his tent pitched by the the road during the day, and coming back, uh, we just pulled up and just sort of said good day to him. He was a bloke from Werribee down here in uh, Victoria, walking to the top of Australia. So oh, he wow. had, he had already walked from Werribee. Up to um, just past Laura in Cape York, young bloke, nearly, nearly there. Wow. Yeah, he was, he was, he was happy. Um, yeah, he was out what, on an adventure. What, what for? Just for the fun of it? Just for the fun of it. Wow! Just the, and he said he met a bloke who was actually walking around Australia. He said, "Oh yeah, we walked together for about a month, and then he went off in another direction and." Uh, yeah, look. <laughs> I, I suppose each to their own. He's no, yeah, he's a, he's always going to have that adventure on it. But yeah, he looked. He seemed to have it all together. We yeah, we stopped and gave. When we stopped, we gave him uh, a whole lot of water, some of which were was frozen, and his eyes just about popped out of his head. It's oh, it was just such a luxury, frozen water. He goes, oh. God, I'm going to enjoy this, and it was. You could see him thinking, oh, "I can't wait though, just sit down, and sip this, uh, sip this frozen water." Uh, uh. Yeah, so that was interesting. To, interesting to meet him, uh, but yeah, look, it was it was a it was a good a good trip. There's a whole lot of stuff for it, but yep, I'm back and into it. What have you been up to? Um, I got caught. Uh, I got caught out a little bit yesterday. Uh, bloody. Um, bushfires. There are Ooh. so many bushfires in in Queensland at the moment because it is so dry. I don't think we've had any meaningful rain for probably eight weeks, maybe more. Uh, we did have a little bit of rain here locally, but it was 
couple of millimeters. It was nothing really. Uh, and there's just bushfires everywhere at the moment. We were going to go camping this weekend, uh, and we've unfortunately had to camp cancel the trip because where we were going is currently on fire. Um, oh, cool. The national the national park that oh. we were going to is literally burning down. Uh, as we speak, um, they did have uh, I think four aircraft in the air, in the air yesterday, uh, trying to trying to get the fire under control. But sometimes when it is in the national parks, they just more focus on protecting any property that's surrounding it rather than you know and kind of just letting letting the national park burn, uh, provided that you know no property or, or human lives are in danger and that sort of stuff. So. Um, so yeah, it's been. It was a little bit freaky the other day as I was driving through some of the back roads, a bit of a shortcut, uh, and turn the corner, and there's a police blockade there, telling me to turn around because the road is on fire essentially ahead of me. Oh. And I was like, oh my gosh, um, you know, I could see it in the distance and the um, and the smoke and everything like that, but I didn't realize how the wind had turned turned around and they'd been keeping an eye on it and everything like that. So. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a huge inconvenience to me. I could just turn around, and luckily, uh, I'd had plenty of time up my up my sleeve for any uh, anything that went wrong. Uh, but yeah, it is a little bit freaky when you you sort of turn around and they're like, "No, you know, you have to leave right now." In fact, they were leaving as well, um, oh, so they wow. weren't weren't too far behind me because because the wind had turned around and it was the fire was coming back towards uh, uh, where the road was. So. Um, this is like a, a backcountry road that's not very well, n- not uh, particularly popular. Uh, it's normally only locals and people like me that sort of knew the way. Um, but yeah, that was a bit. That was a bit of a an adrenaline rush. It was certainly yeah. unexpected for for that morning. But um, I was safe, obviously, um, and and I don't believe there was any destruction of of, of or any meaningful destruction of. of property and things like that as i did drive past further up that road when where it was open uh there was a bunch of cane fields that were harvested probably a month ago or so um and there was a couple of uh the fire had gone through what remains of the cane fields uh and there's a bit of a park on the other side uh and all of their equipment sheds all were all burnt down, but I imagine uh, they probably had time to get the equipment out of the sheds. But you know, it's still a bit of a loss when your shed burns down, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, so, so that was a bit. You know, it's a bit sad to see, but um, unfortunately, I think these things are going to be. We're going to be seeing this sort of stuff a little bit more as as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks with the the El Nino yeah, cycle. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be hot and dry for the vast majority of Australia. And speaking of the vast majority of Australia, more than 80% of Australians believe pork barrelling is a form of corruption. Basically, two-thirds believe that corruption is common at the federal government, and more than 80% of them agree that pork barreling is a form of corruption, as I've said now three times. Uh, and quite frankly, <laughs> I I agree. It is. Um, so hang on. I hear some of you say, what the hell is pork barreling? I'm so glad you asked. 
Uh, it's actually not a delicious canned food, but instead dubious government spending. Pork barreling is when the expenditure of government taxpayer dollars spent on a project that is only to benefit a narrow local community constituency specifically to shore up support for the incumbent government. We saw this, uh, basically a perfect example of this a couple of years ago in Australian politics, the sports, sports rorts, I think was Mm. what it was. It's nickname. Yep. uh, Where I think it was a double S double a rifle shooting club was awarded a significant grant actually more money than they'd originally asked for uh because they were shoring up support for the the liberal national coalition at the time um basically it's in my opinion it's it's absolutely corruption um i don't know how anyone could spit it any other way just because it's not illegal doesn't make it immoral um The polling also suggests that Australians view a broad range of behaviours as corrupt conduct. That includes appointing friends and colleagues to a public role over a more qualified applicant, which 86% of respondents viewed as corrupt, and the allocation of public money to marginal seats to win votes, which 81% believe to be corrupt, which is basically pork barrelling. Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index showed a slight improvement in public views about corruption in Australia this year. Mostly that can be attributed to the establishment of the Federal Anti-Corruption Commission. But Australia's rating remains at a near record low level and its global ranking is now 13th, a drop from 6th in 2012. Well, surely we could bribe someone to get higher up on that. <laughs> in 2018, a joint survey by Transparency International and Griffith University found 85% of Australians believe at least some federal politicians to be corrupt. I agree with them. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> I, I can hear you foaming at the mouth, ready to dive straight into this topic. So please tell us your thoughts. I mean, who, who the bloody hell are the 20% who don't think it's corrupt? Okay. <laughs> that's oh, a good question. <laughs> who's sitting there thinking, oh, no, no, yeah, that's that's not corruption. That's just how things go. Look, for me, the, the problem, or the problem, a problem of enormous size on this to me is Government, and I don't care which side you're talking from. You know, I know people say, "Oh, you know, the bloody libs were corrupt there," and "Oh, Labor's corrupt here," and it goes back and forth. They're all bloody corrupt. They all do it. Pork barreling is, uh, yeah, it's been around as long as I can remember. The problem is that government has no trust credits in the bank. There hasn't been any trust actually earned to allow for some things to come out and say, "Ah, well." Look, I know that looks a bit dodgy that your uh, electorate is getting a you know, a full full not Olympic sized swimming pool, um, or you know a stadium or something like that. But in fairness, I've seen that you're doing this, done this, that, and the other in uh, different electorates. There's none of that, nothing, nothing in the bank there. So I'm complete in complete agreement 
that pork barrelling is a form of, of corruption. You mentioned a couple of other things with appointing uh, friends. Uh, there was also, uh, I think we were both looking at a similar Guardian article. I'll put that. I'll put that in the uh, the sources. There was a who was it? Robert Redley KC, and he's talking about a thing called grey corruption. You know, forms of questionable contact conduct that are not um, criminal and. That to me is uh, that to me is one of the ones that I find sort of the most uh, insidious. It's those that little bit of a taking here, a little bit of a taking there, appointing a mate here, and you've got it all from branches of government, from federal all the way down to to local. You start adding up how many bloody people are wetting their beak in your um, in your drink. You get to the end, and there's not even a shot left for you. You know, I've I find that. Uh, look to me to to, to uh, you can call pork barreling what you like, but that's really just putting lipstick on a pig. It's plain out and out corruption for me. It's typical of what happens when you get bureaucrats in a position where there is no accountability because both sides are doing it. And I suppose that to me is the, the base problem. There's no way that you can actually have um, you know, an organization. And I know that I know they've got they've got auditors out there and God knows how many people saying, well, yeah, we're keeping an eye on spending, we're keeping an eye on corruption. But it seems like every time they that the um, Volatility swings, and you actually get uh, enough public support to do something about corruption. All this type of thing gets revealed, and we find out that no side's any good; both are just as bad as the other. And a couple of people get a slap on the wrist, and then it goes on as as always. I pigs at the trough is an apt description. Yeah. I, I I do think you're right. I, I I feel like though, and it probably because the new government, uh, this current government is so new, they really haven't had the time probably to sink their their teeth in as far as say the previous government. Uh, but the fact that we've fallen to 13th from 6th in the last decade and the last decade had the coalition in power suggests that perhaps the the coalition is, uh, you know, corruption is deeply rooted in that organisation and how they run their governments and everything like that, and we saw oh, this perfectly fair. That's perfectly yeah. I, I didn't want I didn't want to say that I, I didn't want to imply that I was letting the coalition off the thing because they that's fairly and squarely on their shoulders that that rating. We'll see how it how it goes, but yeah, I do agree with you with that. Didn't want to give them any excuse. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like. I'm sitting here going, oh, herd her, labor is good and <laughs> coalition bad, because that's not what I'm doing. I'm just pointing out very specifically in this case, we've got the statistics, we know how they've, and we also know that the sentiment has increased and the score 
will likely increase because of the establishment of a federal uh, anti-corruption commission, the federal ICAC, uh, which the coalition government repeatedly failed to do. I wonder why. Mm, you know, it's it's yeah. You look at it going well. Could you be any more guilty without actually admitting it sort of thing? So, um, and we all know, uh, you know, employing friends and family or colleagues uh, over uh, more qualified applicants, uh, we have a word for that. It's called nepotism. It is very common, not just in government, in business. uh, And unfortunately, I don't think that's something that, I think that's a little bit of human nature. I don't think that's something that is very easily gotten rid of. And I think the only way to, to really get rid of something like that is to have a really transparent uh, like hiring process. Uh, uh, a good example, if we remember a couple of years ago, the Great Barrier Reef uh, uh, protection uh, um Grant money, something ridiculous, several hundred million dollars, if you remember, when was awarded without competition to one of Scott Morrison's friends is a good example. Um, how that, you know, at the time, I think we spoke about this on the on the podcast, and at the time I was like, this is corruption. Like, there's no other way to paint this picture. Um, and it, it's that sort of stuff. And I think Australians are really, well, at least I hope so. I hope we're getting sick of it enough to want to to make some changes, um, some proper long-term changes. Obviously, the establishment of a federal anti-corruption commission is fantastic. I think we, some of the states and territories still don't have one, and we probably should. Yeah, probably uh, every one of them should have uh, a federal, uh, a state level anti-corruption commission, uh, but look, this is something that we're going to have to keep an eye on. This might be something that we come back to uh, yeah. maybe on a yearly basis to just check to see where we're at with those uh, international levels and see if we've dropped further or maybe we're we're getting back up to where we were. I don't know. This might be something we have to come back to, but at least for now, the yeah, vast majority uh, uh, of Australians aren't yeah. happy. And that's the that to me is a, a a massive positive from this. Those figures that you read out, you know, when you're talking eighty percent here, eighty one percent there, uh, that to me was the positive the positive takeaway from from this that people are actually seeing it. Yeah, people are seeing it, and people aren't afraid to speak out about it, which is the right way these things need to go. If you see yeah. corruption, if you if you you know. Um, and I think that's just Australian culture as well. You know, when we when we see something wrong, it, it's a bit of that fair go mentality. You know, um, yeah, yeah. we have to call it out, which is which is important. So let's move on. I think it's time for our two ticks town talk. So this week we're gonna we're talking about a town. Uh, well. I should say, we're talking about a, a town that is no longer. That means we're talking about a ghost town. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> uh, and I know it's just been Halloween and we're laughing, uh, but this I can assure you this story is actually genuinely scary. Uh, so this week we are off to Western Australia to the Bill Pilbara region to the former town of Wittenoom. 
The traditional owners of the area are the Panjima people of the Pilbara, but the land around where the town of Whittenham would become was officially settled by West Australian politician Sir Edry, sorry, Sir Edward Horn Whittenham, uh, but it's actually not named after him. The town is actually named after his brother, Frank Whittenham. Uh, being the Pilbara, I'm sure some of our listeners, and Adit, I'm sure you too, are probably <laughs> likely wondering what they were digging out of the ground to support that town. Uh, the Pilbara is famously full of mines, uh, and you'd be right, there was something they were digging up. It was a little blue mineral that was mined in the Yampire Gorge just south of the town, about 10 kilometres away up the valley. Uh, and the town was uh, was actually established to support the mine and the miners' families. Now, it all began in 1937 when a man called Lang Hancock showed samples of the blue ah. mineral that he'd picked up in the Empire Gorge to a couple of blokes called Iswin Walters and Walter Leonard. When he was told that it would fetch 70 pounds per tonne, that's $7,266 in today's money. That's a huge amount of money. He immediately went back and pegged out the best claim in the gorge. By contrast, a ton of iron ore today sells for roughly 120 Australian dollars. So this blue mineral, I'm specifically holding you into suspense about yes. what it is. No, I know you're holding me in suspense. <laughs> is $7,226. It's big money, right? In 1943, the Colonial Sugar Refinery Company, called CSR, took over both the Whitnoom and the Yampire mines. So there was actually two mines there, but, but the Whitnoom was considerably bigger. Uh, and they needed to build a town for all the workers to, uh, to house them and everything like that. So prior to 1943... Between 1937 and 1943, Lang Hancock established a company to to mine there. However, they, it was a very small, uh, there was only about 20, 25 people, so it wasn't a very big, big deal. Uh, but in 1943, as I said, it was purchased by CSR and one of their subsidiaries, uh, and they needed... Uh, they increased production massively, and of course, with that came the need to house uh, all of the workers and their families. So, mm. in 1950, the town was officially declared, and it had a peak population in 1961 of just under 900 permanent residents, though it's estimated about 20,000 people lived in Wittenoom through the town's lifetime. Huh. So... Fine-grain tailings, which tailings is when they're digging stuff out of the mine, the stuff that's not necessarily productive enough to, to be taken away, it's kind of the, the leftover material, if you like. Uh, so these fine-grain tailings of the mine began to pile up all around the gorge. Uh, but the people of Whitnoom, they're pretty ingenious. Huh. They looked at the tailings and figured, well, hey, these are free. It's it's basically rubble, like uh, similar to gravel. So let's use this to build all of our roads, our sidewalks, insulate 
uh, our we use it as insulation in our roofs and in our walls to keep out that hot outback sun. Uh, and of course, because it is fine, we will use it for our backyard sand pits as well. Unfortunately, that blue mineral I've been alluding to throughout this whole thing was asbestos. Oh no! Right. Um, oh, and it's blue asbestos. So you might be thinking, hang on, isn't asbestos white? Yes. <laughs> Normally, yes. There are actually six different types of asbestos, all of which are composed of long, thin, fibrous crystals. The crystals, when they're inhaled, embed themselves into your lungs and can cause mesothelioma, asbestosis, lung cancer, and other diseases. Unfortunately, for the town of Wittenoom, blue asbestos, is also called crocodite, is the most dangerous of all types of asbestos, as its fibers are finer and shorter than the other types, which means they penetrate much deeper into your lung tissue. So quite often you'll get asbestosis, as you've probably heard of, uh, but the worst kind of uh, asbestos-related disease is mesothelioma, and that is primarily what you get from blue asbestos. Um, So you can imagine these people are using... All the tailings in their roads, in their sidewalks, in their insulation on their house. Literally, I'm not kidding. They filled up sand pits in the backyards and their children played with asbestos fibers. In 1962, the matters of poor hygiene and excessive dust at the CSR Whitnew Mine and Mill were brought to the attention of the Premier of WA and the Cabinet of the Day. Sadly, no action was taken. Because apparently CSR threatened to close the mine if additional restrictions were to be placed upon their mining and milling of blue asbestos in Whitnoom. CSR continued to operate the mine until operations. Uh, sorry, they continued to operate the mine um, with little regard for dust separation and suppression until 1966. Oh, it sorry, is, what was that? What was the, what was the date that they fir- there was that? first alert where they said well, uh, 1962 however and for the sake of time I didn't this is a huge story obviously but it it actually turns out it was the the the, it was only in 1962 that it was actually brought to the authorities attention like the premier and the cabinet prior to that the Royal Flying Doctors Service uh, because of Whitnoom is so, so remote had doctors attending for you know, a, a number of different things. Um, and one of the doctors that would regularly attend was horrified at the conditions in the camp, the amount of dust in the air. He would he would arrive and put a respirator on because he was so concerned about the asbestos exposure in the town. Uh, however, a lot of the townspeople just kind of played it off and, no, oh, it's not that, you know, it's overinflated. The company would say it's not. So there was a lot of a lot of this sort of stuff going on. Um, and of course, blue asbestos was phenomenally profitable. Uh, so CSR had a big uh, financial incentive to keep the mine open. Uh, it is predicted that almost a third of the people who pass through Whitnoom 
during the mine's operating years would be diagnosed with a fatal disease caused by the dangerous exposure to blue asbestos. At least 1,200 former Whitnoon residents and workers have died from lung cancer and mesothelioma, according to the database maintained by the UWA's Occupational Respiratory uh, Group. In June 2007, John Ford, the Minister for Regional Development, announced that the town site had officially been de-gazetted. The town's name was removed from official maps and road signs, and the Shire of Ashburton is able to close all roads that lead into the contaminated area. Wow. The Whitnoon Closure Bill was passed in Western Australian Parliament in March 2022, allowing the government to permanently close Whitnoon by compulsory acquiring the remaining private properties and removing all infrastructure from the town. Whitnoon's final resident, Lorraine Thomas, was evicted from her home by the WA state government in September 2022. Since then, the buildings have been demolished and the remains have been buried on site. Unfortunately, the legacy doesn't end here. There is an estimated 3 million tonnes of asbestos tailings still present in the gorge, with some of the tailing piles going 40 metres high. The tailings are full of blue asbestos fibres. The WA government has declared 4,500 hectares around the former town as an exclusion zone, but there has been a rise in what they've called extreme tourism in recent years. And I can tell you now, listeners, there is no reason oh, to go there. Yeah. <laughs> Who the hell is wanting to go? If you're listening to this and thinking, hey, that sounds cool, I'm going to tell you. I'll tell you what's there. It's a pile of black and blue rock that will kill you. There is oh. no structures left. Everything has been destroyed. There are some minor pieces of road, crumbling asphalt. That's it. There's nothing to see there, especially when it will cost you your life. The mining and milling of blue asbestos in Whitnoom is the single greatest industrial disaster in Australia's history, and Western Australia has the highest rate of malignant mesothelioma in the world per capita of population. Whitnoom has been nicknamed Australia's Chernobyl. And I cannot stress this enough. Do not attempt to go there. Blue asbestos exposure will kill you slowly and it will hurt the entire time that you're dying. <laughs> that's it. It's horrendous. Wow. That's uh, uh, you, when you're holding me in suspense and I'm thinking, what is this wonderful thing that he's uh, when you got that as mm -hmm. asbestos? I thought, oh, wow. That just, uh, yeah, I guess that's that's a big gobsmacking. I didn't even really know that had was a to, thing. Com to compress this story down. There's a lot of stories uh, about individuals, uh, you know, entire families losing people one by one slowly. Mesothelioma and asbestosis, of course, and lung cancer, um, they don't kill people quickly. It's a very horrible way to die. Uh, the asbestos fibers basically embed themselves inside the lining of your lungs, um, and then that slowly begins to deteriorate your lungs. It's worse than, uh, you know, pack-a-day smoke in your whole life uh, going 
to the to these areas. Um, there is a very famous photograph that we may we may include with this episode in the show notes or something like that. Uh, with they would hold CSR would hold asbestos shoveling competitions where who can shovel uh, a one like a a, a forty four gallon drum of tailings from one. 44 gallon drum to another in the quickest amount of time and there's pictures of these events where there's just dust everywhere these guys are completely covered in dust Um, and you know now knowing what we know about how toxic this chemical is uh oh sorry this this rock is um it's it's horrendous to see and almost everyone in those photos probably died from uh mesothelioma so Wow, you said you weren't kidding when you said it was about a ghost town. Yeah, it really is. It is full of ghosts. Also, and I should stress this as well for listeners that are still hearing this, going, "Ah, oh, nah, it doesn't sound so bad." Mesothelioma is incurable and untreatable. Yep. So, yep. All they do is give you painkillers. That's it. And you just there's nothing else they can do. So. Um, modern medicine will not help you, so do not go here. Unlike every other two text town talk, do not go. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was uh, that was very disturbing. Yeah, look, I almost didn't do this because I didn't want to advertise uh, this place for the extreme tourism thing. But I would like to think our listeners are smart enough to. You know, make good choices. Well, I'd hope so too. I think uh, I think we can assume that. So there you go. There's your genuine spooky, scary Halloween story. Yeah. Bloody oath! Oh, thank you for thank you for that. Was it, it uh, appropriate for this time of year? Definitely. Also, such a shame. Was such a black mark on. Uh, Australia's history. Actually, the band Midnight Oil, one of their songs is about this. I had no idea. Um, oh, Blue Sky Mart. No, Blue Sky. It? Yep, yep, it is. That's yeah. it. Yep, that's what that's what it's about. And I couldn't. Oh, Sugar Refining Company. Went yep. Right. Oh. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So the, the the one the one good thing about this is, and I didn't want to go into this too much because because it, it would it would take up a lot of time. But just quickly, the one upside was that CSR basically got sued into the ground by the Whitnew miners and the residents, um, and they have paid millions, tens of millions in compensation. Not that not that it makes it any better, and not that no. it helps these people. Uh, that much because, as I said, all the stuff's incurable anyway. Um, but they are trying, you know, they are being held accountable, is what I should say, to right. to an extent, uh, as far as the law will allow it. So, but unfortunately, all of that stuff is still there. They've just washed their hands of it and walked away. Um, they've, their subsidiary was called Blue Asbestos Pty Limited, and uh, Blue Asbestos is defunct. It went bankrupt, and CSR. Uh, made two billion dollars in profit last year from their sugar refining and other other businesses, um, but they can't seem to find the money to go and clean up the mess that they've made. So, oh, yeah, wow, God, where would you even start there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, it's yeah. 
horrendous thing. Let's move on. Uh, (laughs) Australia's migrant uh, intake has likely already hit a record 500,000 people in September as international students and working holiday makers have returned en masse challenging official forecasts that migration will fall sharply over the coming year. The immigration surge has become an uncomfortable topic for the Albanese government as the coalition seeks to capitalise on community concerns about the size of the intake and accuses Labor of pursuing big Australia by stealth. Now, I just... This is a weird play in my mind from the coalition because... I would think they would try and capitalise this because of the the housing shortage, not because of you want a bigger country. Uh, I'm not really sure. The government has framed the record numbers as a one-off event as foreigners return to Australia after the end of pandemic-era border closures. Business has largely welcomed the arrival of foreign workers and students, which it argues is vital for filling acute labour shortages. And economists say that the size of the intake has added pressures in the rental market uh, and has helped push house prices higher. Grattan Institute Economic Policy Program Director Brendan Coates said the record numbers would add to Australia's inflation challenge. He said the biggest short-term economic impact is that it's likely to push unemployment lower and inflation higher, since new arrivals tend to spend more than they earn and therefore add more demand for jobs than they take, especially among international students who are the big driver of record migration currently. Record rates of migration are also adding to housing demand pushing vacancy rates lower and rents higher. An extra 100,000 migrant residents in Australia over the 2023-2024 compared to the budget forecasts of 315,000 for the same period is going to push rents up a further 1%, according to him. I would say it's going to push rents significantly further than 1%. Um, The Albanese government is due to respond to the first major review of Australia's migration system in decades before the end of the year. So we will cover that when they do officially uh, complete their uh, review of Australia's migration system uh, and deliver the report or or however they want to deliver it. Um, I'm sure we'll cover it at the time. But this is a huge... uh, I think it's actually a really big misstep by this government uh, allowing this many this many uh, migrants to come in. Three hundred fifty thousand is a significant amount, which is what the budget forecasts were. Uh, but allowing this to be so much higher over the top of that um, before the you know the year's not over yet, people are still coming in. Um, is especially when we've got record inflation and a housing crisis. Uh, you know, you put it all together, and it's it's really a bit of a I think a bit of a misstep by this government. Yeah, look, I probably tend to uh, agree with you on that. Um, it's 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 a difficult thing to to juggle migration, but uh, if you're talking about uh, one of the things that government has a, a large control of, and that is the that is the border and who can and can't come in. Um, 
it does fall squarely on their their shoulders. Look, I, I can I can understand that it's not it's, it's, it's human beings doing you know responding to different uh, economic situations and things going on in the the world. So you can't ever really say, okay, well we're we're going to have this exact amount and this exact amount of people are going to stay and leave. But you have got a band in which you can manage it, and they do generally manage it within the band. And this does come across as as poor management. And I think one of the things that uh, I particularly noticed in the in our subreddit, the R slash Australian subreddit, a lot of concern was expressed about the impact on rental and on housing. And I think justifiably. And I think for the Labor government, that's going to be a bit of a problem. They they seem to be doing a little, I don't know, they seem to be spinning it as sort of like, well, just don't you worry about that. There's nothing really much going on here. This is just a, a blip. Everything's under control. And when government tells me not to worry about something and that everything's under control, um, I worry about it. And I think it's probably not under control at all. So I tend to agree with what you were, were saying that it's going to be it's particularly going to be a, a tricky one for them also th- look I obviously you, you've got the um, you've, you've got different benefits of the of migration uh, but when you actually start to push these things a little bit more to the extreme particularly in we've got a delicate economic situation with cost of living, which is impacted so highly by things such as as rent and uh, your pay as well. Uh, it's diluting some of the, uh, uh, what would you say, the, the power of the worker when the, as, infl- as, yeah, as the unemployment rate goes down, the, the power that's in the hands of the worker tends to go down as, as well. Um, I think it's a little bit of a double, uh, not a double-edged sword. That's not the. Uh, it's 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 a double it's a double threat to a lot of people out there on the rental and the employment side. And I'm prepared to say, let's see how the next um, year goes. Because, in fairness, and I hate to use that word for government, but to be fair, this may turn out to be a bit of a blip. If it's not a blip and this isn't take under control, I think it's a real problem for uh, Australia and the, the Labor government. Yeah, I am, I am concerned that this – look, I know a lot of it is the, the students coming back to Australia that had to leave during the COVID pandemic um, yeah. and they haven't returned – Prior to this, because a lot of those a lot of those students do come from China, um, and of course they have had their own internal lockdowns uh, that were sort of delayed from when ours lifted and things like that. So this year and the start of next year is when a lot of them are going to be, you know, for the first time are actually going to be able to come back, which is why they're sort of, I guess, they're probably rushing back in. Um, but I do think this was, yeah, this was a misstep. I think they've looked at it and go, for economic reasons, having uh, big migration is really good for the country for economic reasons. Um, however, there is a social cost potentially uh, that can be paid 
that can be detrimental, uh, allowing you know a huge amount of immigration into a country. Uh, plus, you've also got where do you house them? Um, the fact that they, they do, they are a little bit inflationary because they do bring in a lot of money from overseas, which I know sounds good, uh, and they spend it here, but they don't, they don't actually create, uh, they don't create um, a lot of, uh, they, they don't produce themselves. They're bringing that money with them. What I mean is like they don't, oftentimes they don't have a job. Um, and I know this sounds good probably to the layman, but economically speaking, that's actually inflationary. Uh, and as a lot of our listeners will be aware, inflation is a little bit out of control right now. Oh, so, yeah. you know, generally speaking on a normal, you know, Three years ago, four years ago, uh, the inflationary uh, uh, impact of a massive amount of migration, especially international students, isn't a big deal. It's actually quite a good thing. Um, but right now, is that the right thing to be doing? Probably not. And I really, like you said, I really think this is a bit of a misstep because probably not from the inflation side, uh, but but more from the housing side. Even if all of those students actually live in dormitories and things like that, and they're not actually, which is, you know, not true because there's 500,000 of them, but uh, even if that was the case, just the optics of this to the average Australian, especially people that are renting, especially people that are staring down the barrel of huge rent increases mm. or the unavailability of, of rental properties, the fact that, you know, I've got money to pay for one, but I literally can't get a house. <laughs> I think this is really, really poor optics, and we'll see if this hurts them in the next election or not. Um, Look, it may depend. It may depend. That's why I sort of uh, put in that that rider about uh, how it goes next year. Uh, if it is a blip and there's some control, well, p perhaps it won't. It won't hurt them. If there isn't uh, control on it, I think it will. I think it will be a big hit. I don't see any real economic relief on the horizon. Um, for the next few years. Yeah. And look, you know, the, there is, uh, the election is 2025 probably. Um, so for our American listeners that are like, what do you mean? Probably. Um, unlike your federal elections, oh, yeah. ours aren't on a specific day. Uh, ours are called by the government, well, by the prime minister, uh, when he feels that it's the most advantage uh, for him to be re-elected. So it can be anywhere in that four-year time. So it has to be called during 2025 or before. So it could be the end of this year. It won't be, but... Um, you know, voters' uh, memories are reasonably short, but if you're living in a tent <laughs> because of this, you're not going to forget. Um, so we'll see. This, this, you're right. It might just be a blip. People coming in because they want to enrol for for university next year and stuff like that. But we'll see. We'll see. It sounds yep. like we need to we need to start building more cities. But well, may well be. May well be. Speaking of history and building cities in Australia, I don't know. That's not a segue. That doesn't work at all. Ah. Uh, <laughs> what's happened this week in Australian history? Okay, this week in Australian history, we're covering 24th of October to the 30th of October. So we'll start off on the uh, 24th, 24th, 1889. 
The Tenterfield Oration is delivered by Henry Parks, calling for the Federation of the States. Um, this this was a speech given by Sir Henry Parks, who was Premier of the Colony of New South Wales at that, that point, given at the Tenterfield School of Arts at Tenterfield, which is a place in rural New South Wales. Um, in the oration, Parks called for the Federation of the Six Australian Colonies, uh, which were self-governing at the time uh, and under some distant central authority in Britain, British Colonial Secretary, and the speech is considered to be start the start of the federation process in Australia, which yeah, led to the founding of the Commonwealth of Australia uh, 12 years later. We've done a whole deep dive on that too. Yeah. Uh, 1934, CWA Scott and Tom Campbell Black cross the finishing line and win the McRobertson Air Race, flying from London to Melbourne in an elapsed time of 71 hours. So that's an interesting little race. We might uh, might cover that at some time in the future. But yes, 1934. So that was uh, not exactly modern aircraft. 19... No. 71 no. hours. It's a long friggin' oh, yeah. flight. It's a long way. Bloody oath. Bloody oath. 1980, the Special Broadcasting Service, we commonly call it just SBS now, begins full-time television transmission in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, Bruce Gingell, who was the first man to speak on Australian television in 1956, did the honours of opening up SBS. October 25th, 1938, the Kaima air disaster killed 18 in Mount Dandenong, Victoria. Uh, there was a crash, Australian Air, the National uh, Airways, was it Douglas DC-2, uh, going from Adelaide to Melbourne, did the final approach to Essendon Airport through heavy fog, uh, unfortunately crashed into the western slopes of Mount Dandenong. Um, and everybody... Died instantly, which if you go, it's a good way to go. Uh, 1990, Nelson Mandela visits the Parliament of Victoria eight and a half months after his release from prison in South Africa. I can't even, I'm trying to, I can't even remember what sparked that visit, but yeah, like why he bothered to come over here to Victoria. Um, yeah, I wonder why. Yeah, I wonder. I in fact, just as I'm reading that out to you, I think, I think well, what bloody hell did he come here? What was he here in Australia for? I'll look it up. I'll see why he was here. All right. So, okay. <laughs> uh, 2003, Australia defeated Namibia in the 2003 Rugby World Cup. But, like, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to have a guess at this one, poor buggers. So, and I'll get, I'll, I'll, Australia defeated Namibia in the 2003 Rugby World Cup. I'm guessing Namibia wasn't, um, didn't have a particularly strong rugby team, particularly compared to somewhere like Australia, which, you know, just been into the sport for ages. But guess what the, uh, the final score was? So, this will be like in a, oh, the, yeah, in, a, a in a group, yeah, a group stage match, because Namibia's not, uh, particularly big rugby union country. I mean, locally they probably are. I, I'm not trying to offend any of our Namibian listeners, but uh, you know, on the world stage, they're not. They're not a big, you know. No, no. Uh, it's got to be bad. I'm gonna say a hundred, a hundred to ten or something like that. 
Oh, very close. 142 points to nil. So <laughs> that, is not, that is not close. Oh my god! No, no, no. Clo- your guess, your guess was close. Oh, uh, do you know what? Yeah, I, yeah, no, I, no, no, yeah. I need, I need to go watch that game because oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. So, um, I'm guessing there's some activities, uh, some sports in Namibia that uh, <laughs> we could have a similar thing if the tables were turned. Uh, 2004 and October 25th, a car bomb explodes near the Australian embassy in Baghdad, uh, killing several Iraqi civilians and injuring three Australian soldiers. Um, October 26, 1616, Dutch explorer Dirk Hartog is the first European explorer to reach Western Australia. 1921, the first group of Barnardo's boys arrived in Sydney, and they were, that's like an English uh, charity that looked after you know, orphans and people, uh, kids who weren't well off, and um, I think they must have brought them over here for to start off a different life. 1964, Eric Edgar Cook was hanged, last person in Western Australia to be executed. 1985, uh, the Mutajula people of uh, Central Australia were given freehold title to Uluru and the surrounding national park. Um, this feels like that was longer ago, but not 1985, I suppose it's almost 40 years. Uh, 2002, Federation Square in Melbourne is opened. Now, I liked Federation Square from the start. It was, there was two old gas towers, uh, like, sorry, gas corporation or something towers are up there, two big old brown brick things, and people seemed to be attached to them, and uh, that was under Jeff Kennett. He wasn't, yeah, a lot of people didn't like him, and it was, oh, you know, what are you doing with it? Personally, I think it turned out to be a bit of a winner. I like the architecture. And also, too, if you ever get down, if anyone ever gets down here and checks out Fed Square, the patterning on it is a it's like a fractal pattern it's made up of small triangles which when they go together they make slightly larger versions of the same triangles and those slightly larger versions get put together and make you know slightly larger versions again so that process was oh, just cool. repeated yeah i thought i thought so too it was it was really good so it's got that that fractal aspect to it it's it doesn't sort of repeat it's um I happen to think it's well well designed, and uh, I've yeah, never but- been to Fed Square only because when I was in Melbourne earlier this year, we went to ACDC Lane, which is just around the corner, uh, and we were going to go to Fed Square afterwards, and it started pouring with rain, uh, and so I said, "Well, let's just go get a drink somewhere." We walked into a, a little Asian restaurant called Chin Chin. One of the best restaurants I've ever been to. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, not not super cheap. Not super expensive. Uh, very very popular, uh, and oh. absolutely incredible food. So if you are in Melbourne and you're down that end, go to a little little restaurant called Chin Chin if you like Asian food. It's a bit of an Asian fusion type type of restaurant. Very cool, funky sort of place. So. Chin Chin. I'll note that down. Do go out with uh, go out uh, each month for. A- uh, a mate of mine, we call it Gentleman's Dinner. So we go, mm-hmm. we go out for a feed. Um, oh, okay, I'll note that down. 
Uh, next time you're down, check out Fed, Fed Square. Uh, where am I? October 27th, uh, 1897, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne is consecrated. 1915, Billy Hughes becomes the seventh Prime Minister of Australia and the first to serve consecutive terms in office. Uh, 1927, Melbourne gangster Squizzy Taylor is killed in a shootout. Uh, I started. Click, I thought I'll click through that that link in in Wikipedia, and uh, I thought, God, there's a whole bloody story there about Squizzy Taylor. In fact, there's, mm. there's movies about him. I think, or yeah. at least one. Yeah, I think they they did an underbelly series about him. I think oh, as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That wasn't a bad series, underbelly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1953, British nuclear test Totem 2 is detonated at Emu Field in South Australia, um, and then after that they moved to, to Woomera. 1980, the Great Barrier Reef is listed as a World Heritage Site. 1990, Northern Territory elections return Country Liberal Party Government of Marshall Perrin to power. And 2002, terrorist group Jamar Islamir is burned, burned, banned by the Attorney General. October 28th, 1834, the Battle of Pinjara occurs in the Swan River Colony in present-day Pinjara, Western Australia. Uh, between 14 to 40 Aborigines are killed by British colonists. Uh, 1886, William B. Daly, Australia's first member of the Privy Council, dies in Sydney. 1916, the first plebiscite on the issue of military conscription was held and it was defeated. <laughs> yeah. We don't like saying yes to things, no. do we? <laughs> no, we, we don't. Uh, just for people listening, a, a plebiscite is essentially a referendum that doesn't change anything in the Constitution. So because it doesn't change the constitution, there's some things that aren't binding um, uh, in terms of how they count up states and, and territories and percentages. Uh, in fact, we had the, uh, the um, oh, what do they call The same-sex marriage vote. Same-sex marriage plebiscite, yeah. thank you. That's the word. I couldn't remember the exact one. 1952, death of Billy Hughes, the seventh prime minister of Australia. <laughs> Age 90. Uh, 1969, Christo and Jean-Claude complete the Wrapped Coast, uh, W-R-A-P-P-E-D, Wrapped Coast using 9,300 square metres of synthetic fabric and 56 kilometres of rope to wrap Little Bay, New South Wales. Um, this was an art exhibition, I assume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, wait, what? I was like, well, hang definitely, on, sorry. Definitely, what? Art. <laughs> yeah, definitely an art thing. Um, yeah, Christo and uh, I, I didn't remember Jean Claude, but uh, Christo, I know, yeah, he was he was uh, bloody mad for wrapping things. He bloody travel all over the world and throw up <laughs> throw up fabric and rope over just about anything he'd be allowed on a, a large scale. So, ah. Oh, uh, probably wasn't my what well, not that I was around then. Um, uh, that's not really my style of art, but yeah, it did Looking sort of emphasize the form and 
Uh, yeah, I'm looking at some pictures of it. I don't know. I don't. It's not for me. Also, apparently there was a storm and a lot of. The, I guess they're like tarps, uh, like white tarps. Um, yeah. There was a storm and they're all like ripped up and destroyed <laughs> and getting washed away into the ocean. And that. <laughs> I don't think it was great for the turtles and whales and things. But you know, <laughs> probably not. Probably not. God. <laughs> 1971, the British satellite Prospero X-3 was launched into space from Woomera, South Australia, making Britain the seventh country with a satellite. Uh, October 29th, 1914, the War Precautions Act of 1914, which gave the Government of Australia special powers for the duration of World War I and for six months afterwards, was passed by the Parliament of Australia and digging a little bit into the surface of that surprise surprise uh many of the powers in there were abused for political reasons mm. uh, yeah who would have thought yeah. um, <laughs> so when people where we're talking about harkening back to our earlier segment talk about corruption it's nothing new uh 1953 british commonwealth pacific airlines uh, Douglas DC-6 uh, crashed en route from Sydney to San Francisco, killing 19 people. 1982, Lindy Chamberlain is sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of her baby daughter, Azaria, and her husband, Michael Ch- Chamberlain, is charged as an accessory. I think in a couple of times in this week in Australian history, it's come up about uh, Lindy and Michael Chamberlain and what a bloody rough deal they got out of that so yeah it comes up a few times of course the poor buggers were bloody dragged through oh yeah so for our listeners that don't know lindy chamberlain is the dingo stole my baby you know that famous quote uh it and it it's true it did happen it really did yeah yeah literally taken so yeah Okay, in the home straight, October 30th, uh, this is the last day, 1920, the Communist Party of Australia was formed. Boo. <laughs> Did you just boo then, comrade? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 1942, Australian Ninth Division reaches uh, sea in the Battle of El Alamein. Uh 1965, Jean Shrimpton, the shrimp, one of the uh, one of the first supermodels, bears her knee at the Victoria Derby race during Melbourne Cup week. Um, she helped launch the miniskirt, and in 1965, she made a, a two-week promo visit to Australia and was sponsored by the Victorian Racing Club and uh, – some was it, and a local synthetic fiber company who'd paid her to promote a range of dresses made of Orion. Uh, she got something like two thousand pounds back then in '65, which was a, a shirt load. But she caused a sensation in Melbourne when she arrived for the Victorian Derby, wearing a white shift dress made by Colin Rolfe, which ended five inches above her knee. She wore Ooh. no hat, stockings, or gloves and sported a man's watch, unusual at the time. <laughs> so, yeah. I was like, how splash. things have changed. Made yeah. a splash. Oh, how things have changed, yeah. And finally, 1988, 
Expo 88 draws to a close after running for six months up in uh, Brisbane. Brisbane. So, draw to a close this week on, on This Week in Australian History. But as one segment closes, another opens. Oh, hang on, hang on. I found oh. out why Nelson oh. Mandela was in Australia. Oh, oh, yeah. I forgot. Oh, good. Tell me that, and then I'll then I'll I'll redo that as if that was just <laughs> totally the off the cuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, why, why was so it here? Nelson Mandela, uh, of course, was the prime minister, president of South South Africa at the time, and he and his wife visited Australia uh, in October uh, because they were visiting, um, they were doing an Asian tour, which included Australia, which famously isn't part of Asia, uh, India, Japan, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei. So I think it was just a state tour sort of thing. Um and he did do a few public addresses here while while he was here. So ah, I, did it say if he visited uh, where else he visited in Australia at all? It didn't say. It just said Melbourne. So I'm not sure if he oh. did go anywhere else or if it was just Melbourne. Oh, well, that's a bit of a coup. Hmm. Yeah, we're still upset about it up here in Queensland. <laughs> you should have come to Expo 88. It would have been a yeah. lot better. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, thank you for looking that uh, that up. Uh, so, yes, as we close this week in Australia, as I was just about to say, uh, uh, as one segment closes, another one opens, and next we'll be opening a beer. All right. This week in the Forex bottle top question, I've got an easy one and a hard one. And Ooh. if you if you even come close on this hard one, I can't tell you how impressed I will be. Okay. Um and I just uh realized something. So, uh first off, what is the nickname of the men's Australian hockey side? Look, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, no. I'm, la- I'm laughing because I just as I said that the hard one and an easy one, and I'll be impressed if you get it. I just realised when I've printed out my notes that the uh, the last page, which I thought just had uh, had references from the Wikipedia thing, actually had the answer to the hard question. So look, uh-huh. while, while, while you're while you're struggling with uh, what the men's hockey side, I'm going to quickly find my notes so I can actually answer it for you. So, what is the nickname of the men's Australian hockey side? I this played, is the easy one. Yeah, I played hockey when I was in high school, uh, when I was like in grade seven, eight, and nine. Um, so you'd think I would know this immediately. I, I think I know what it is, but I'm not sure. Cause of course, you know, famously Australians like to call their teams after animals, uh, but not always. <laughs> um, I think, I think they're, I want it for some. I don't know why, but I want to say they're the Kookaburras. Oh, that, and you want to say it because you're completely oh, correct. There we go. I haven't thought about the well men's done. hockey in a long time, but that just jumped out at me. So, uh, excellent. Well done. Good on you. I'm impressed with that. I 
I don't know if I'd have got it the other way. I might have might have possibly stumbled on it. <laughs> uh, now, look, this one I was almost a bit surprised that this was on a 4X bottle top, but you'll get why when you hear the question. Um, <laughs> in ancient Babylon, which two goddesses were patrons of beer? I have no idea at all. In ancient Babylon, what two goddesses are the patrons of beer? I, I don't even know any Babylonian goddesses. I couldn't even tell you. No. I, I, I swear if you say one of them is like hops or something like that, I'll lose my mind. That would be no, no, they're not. No, they're not even not even close to that. Uh, do you know what the dog's the dog star is called? No. Oh, okay. Uh, that was going to be a great hint for you, but if you don't know, <laughs> you, you know what I I I ask it because it was on it was on the forex bottle top, but oh, these don't aren't even familiar. So it was Cirrus S I R I S. Because the dog star, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, serious. And I was going to say, think of the dog star and then take you out of it. Um, and the other one is Ninkasi. Yeah, no. Nah, got no so, idea. No, neither, neither did I. And that, that's why I was also laughing too, because I was just, just reading, reading the notes. I'm thinking, oh, God, I can't even, I don't have no idea what they are either. I better like, <laughs> rush, open up the uh, iPad and get back to my. my Get back to what I had, because <laughs> I, I thought if, if if you don't know them, which you're not going to, I wouldn't be able to get them. Okay, <laughs> so I could say anything. Um, yeah. well, <laughs> you could have because I mean they're not names that stick, are they? No, no. I'm surprised that's on a on a on a forex bottle top. But you know what? I've been surprised at, at a lot of those questions on the bottle top beer trivia. It's uh, whoever is printing them. Absolute mental, mate. <laughs> like where they get these is from is very, very weird. But um, you know what? I reckon you and I, if we get that in the future, we're probably going to stand at least a reasonable chance of getting Cirrus. Yeah, Cirrus I might have... remember. Yeah. 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 I can't, I've literally forgotten the other one already. <laughs> so God. Hang anyway, on. I have to go back. Her Nin Kasi N I N K K I S K N I N K A S I. Yeah, I won't be remembering that one. I'd already forgotten yeah. it in that two minutes. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the R slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the R slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at R slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you for listening and tell your mum I love her. See you, DK. See ya.